Welcome to the Biopractica Professional Podcast Series. Biopractica is an Australian-owned, practitioner-only brand focusing on nutritional and herbal products proven to play a role in preventative medicine. Biopractica is committed to supporting healthcare professionals in developing their knowledge and skills so they can confidently and effectively tackle the major health challenges facing their patients today. To support this commitment, the Learning Hub was established by Biopractica to offer practitioners a collection of educational resources so they can stay informed on the latest in health science research. Welcome everyone and thank you so much for tuning into our podcast today. Now my name is Roberta Barbiolini and I'm the technical manager here at Biopractica and I'm very excited today to be joined by Stephen Judge. Now Stephen is a clinical naturopath and a nutritionist based in Sydney, Australia. He runs a really busy practice there and he does a lot of work in mental health, digestive disorders, hormonal health and autoimmune diseases. And in particular, Stephen focuses on the adverse effects that chronic stress can have on systemic health. And he does a lot of work uh, with patients to sort of look at how stress can affect digestive function, neuroendocrine function and immune function. And that's why I'm so excited today to be talking to Stephen about the issue of histaminosis and how histamine can actually affect mental health, stress, anxiety, insomnia. So I have to say thank you so much for joining us today, Stephen. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this chat with me. Thanks, Roberta. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Now, obviously, you know, I've given our audience a little bit of an introduction to what you do, but it would be really interesting, Stephen, to find out from you how you actually got into this area of specialisation and why you do so much work in mental health specifically in your clinical practice. Yeah, I mean, the histamine area just kind of happened by accident, to be honest. I guess... Similar to a lot of colleagues in the field, my journey into naturopathic and natu- uh, integrative medicine was through my own kind of health struggles and, you know, not getting answers and wanting to dive a bit deeper into what the underlying causes of my health issues were. And I naturally was just very attracted to mental health and its relationship with gut health. And the histamine the interest in histamine imbalance just kind of was by accident in regards to meeting a lot of patients who were doing all the right things on paper with their diet and supplements and, you know, all the foundational things, but there was some sort of missing element that wasn't being looked at. And I guess histamine imbalance wasn't even something in my studies at university that I learned much about. So once I discovered uh, histamine imbalance as a potential role in people's uh, symptoms, particularly with mental health, it just, you know, opened up a whole world that I had never even uh, heard of or considered. And once I started applying some of these um, testing and supplements and techniques that help with histamine imbalance, I started getting really good results with patients. So, yeah, it was just kind of by accident. And, um, yeah, but it's proved very handy in clinic. It's interesting that, as you say, Stephen, you know, you were drawn to the the whole integrated medicine field because of personal health challenges. I find so many practitioners have that kind of background. And and I actually think it often makes you a bit more empathetic and effective as a clinician when you've had your own challenges to address. Yeah, I think it's a natural rite of passage. (laughs) It is. We're all, you know, it's quite funny. I meet a lot of patients who, um, you know, see me as, as if I must have, always been the pinnacle of health and I communicate to them you know from the very beginning that now I've you know I've been through quite a lot and it's the whole reason I ended up in this profession and um, and you know still need to attend to my health uh, with quite a lot of uh, detail so you know 
Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I think it's really interesting as well, as you said, that obviously mental health issues are, you know, um, very common. And particularly, I think, in the era of COVID and lockdowns, they've become even more common, unfortunately. But the, the specific role of histamine in driving mental health issues is not one that's often discussed. So I'm really interested to be talking about this whole area. But maybe just as a bit of background, Stephen, and particularly for practitioners who may not be familiar with this concept, could you just give us a bit of an explanation of exactly what histaminosis is? Yes. So by definition, histamine intolerance or histaminosis at a, can at a very basic level be defined as a situation that arises in an individual when they have either too much or too little histamine in the body. In my experience, I'd say the majority of clients I see have too much, uh, although from this mental health neurochemical perspective, there are in fact people who can present as having symptoms of low levels of histamine. So I kind of need to preface this whole talk with the image in everyone's mind that with this one molecule, you have four different kinds of receptors and eight different organ systems that it has an influence on. So it can have a staggering level of effects on the body mm. depending on where it's being released. And so it's a huge topic to talk about. And today I'm focusing exclusively as possible on its role in mental health. And, you know, histamine, we know, for example, can cause excess um, gastric acid secretion in the gut and cause diarrhea, pain and cramping. And it can increase estrogen levels and cause dysmenorrhea by stimulating uterine contraction. And it can affect the cardiovascular system and cause hypertension and arrhythmias and flushing, hives and swelling. Like it's quite a huge list mm. of what, you know, histaminosis can manifest as. And most of us, when we hear the word histamine, we immediately think of its immunologic properties and its role in the allergic response, um, causing all those typical rhinitis symptoms like the watery eyes, the runny nose, hives and itching that occur when histamine is released by white blood cells in response to an allergen. Um, most, when we hear the word histamine, most people go to that image um, and its role in the body. But there are various other cells in the body that make histamine so stomach cells, platelets, and of note for our talk today, there is a special group of nerve cells called histaminergic neurons, and these are specialised nerve cells that are very highly concentrated in the brain. And there are also mast cells located in the brain, which are responsible for histamine release on site in the brain, and its impact is identical to the histamine that's released by these histaminergic neurons. That's really interesting because I think you're right that even for myself, to be honest, when you say histamine, my mind immediately goes to like the allergic immunological symptoms associated with too much histamine. But it's fascinating to hear that it can have so many different effects in the body. Mm. And I guess, I mean, you, you, you've mentioned the histaminergic neurons. You've talked just briefly about mast cells. Can I just ask you to clarify for me, Stephen, like where exactly does this histamine come from in the body? Yeah, so... Again, another loaded question, but it's important, it's important to make the distinction between what we could call like the two different groupings of what can cause histaminosis, which can contribute to this overall histamine load. So it can basically be summarised by, by understanding that the sources of histamine uh, can be split into two main categories. So the first one we have is endogenous or internally created histamine. 
And the second is that we have exogenous or externally sourced histamine, which are essentially coming from food. So what is most commonly referenced as histamine intolerance, like in the blogosphere, uh, is definitely the exogenous histamine that's found in a long list of foods and beverages. And, you know, this exogenous histamine is essentially not being detoxified from the body adequately, primarily due to an impaired production of the enzyme diamine oxidase, or DAO for short. Mm. And this is produced in the epithelial lining of the gut. So at a deeper level, this can all be explained by underlying gut dysbiosis, leaky gut, and or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And it's great that there is this increasing awareness of exogenous histamine intolerance, probably due to the increasing understanding of the importance of gut health overall and how it's linked with food intolerances such as histamine intolerance. And certain kinds of gut bacteria also produce histamine and this can contribute to the overall histamine load in the gut. And I could get get right into that a lot deeper. Um, Perhaps I could do a part two of this talk. (laughs) Yep. However, the focus of today's discussion is on histamine and its role in mental health. Because a little, little known fact by many is that histamine is also a neurotransmitter. So histamine within the brain is technically different to the histamine food intolerance that occurs in the gut. They are technically distinct from each other. And not everyone who has a histamine food intolerance experiences histaminosis within the brain. Mm, So to understand our endogenous, so our internally created sources of histamine, it's naturally synthesized within certain cell types in the body from the amino acid histidine. And so an enzyme called L-histidine decarboxylase converts histidine into histamine. And endogenous histamine intolerance, so too much or too little, is the result of an impaired production of an enzyme called histamine and methyltransferase or HNMT for short. And as I mentioned earlier, some individuals can clear histamine too quickly mm. in the cellular environment and display neurological symptoms of low histamine rather than too much. So HNMT is found in many tissues of the body. Um, it is especially highly concentrated in the liver where HNMT is produced as part of the methylation process. So HNMT degrades histamine using the major methyl donor, methionine or SAMe, as a cofactor. And so insufficient SAMe, or its cofactors like B6, B12 and folate, um, could lead to excess levels of endogenous histamine. And so it is possible to have gene variants, otherwise known as SNPs, where your HNMT enzyme doesn't function as optimally as it should. Um, although, you know, research is limited. There was a recent study in children with ADHD that had impaired HNMT function, and this was correlated with them being more reactive to food preservatives and chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um, we have histaminosis, which is being triggered either by outside influences, such as the high histamine foods, due to underlying gut dysbiosis issues, causing poor Dow enzyme production. And then we have histaminosis being triggered by impaired HNMT production, where histamine produced in the brain is technically not related to food. Saying all of that, I very commonly meet individuals who have classic high histamine symptoms affecting their mental health, 
who also have very obvious gut-related histamine intolerance too. So while I'm teasing these apart, we, we do need to remember to always look at the individual person because they might be dealing with both. And so it's also important to remember here that, you know, it gets a bad rap, similar to like, you know, estrogen gets a bad rap in general. Yeah. Um, histamine isn't inherently good or bad, nor is any neurotransmitter in the body. Histamine is essentially just this important signaling molecule in the body, and it's involved in regulating nerve cell activity amongst many other things. And we're constantly making it on purpose in a tiny amount at just the right time in just the right place in order to do something very specific. And as soon as it's done finishing its job by attaching to its receptor and sending its appropriate signal, we should be destroying it instantly. In this case, via the HNMT enzyme. So histamine only really becomes a problem when we fail to do this and it builds up too high, travels through the bloodstream and essentially can wreak havoc on all these other organ systems. I think that is just the, one of the best, most succinct summaries of histamine metabolism I've heard, Stephen. Thank you. And I think it's really important, that point that you make, that, you know, like a lot of signaling molecules in the body, it's not like histamine is good or bad. It's about balance and it's about the right amount being produced at the right time and then being metabolised at the right time as well. And I think really it sounds like the problems only occur in patients when there's too much being produced or too little or those, you know, that those metabolism pathways aren't working properly. Yeah, it's just a point I like to drive home with things in general because, you know, I guess with root cause medicine, we're really trying, you know, the body is always trying to achieve balance, mm. right? So whether it's histamine or copper or estrogen or, you know, these things that tend to get a bad rap, um, it's really just tr about trying to balance them out because they are, are all important and have roles in the body. It's not this black or white, trying to get rid of them. Um, yeah, just a mindset thing almost. I like to um, get patients to focus on as well. Which I guess then leads me to my next question, Stephen, which is, okay, if, it's, if histamine is a natural, normal, uh, you know, chemical signaling molecule that we should have in our body, why does the brain actually produce histamine? Like what's its function in a healthy brain? Yeah, awesome question. So I guess that... We can think of histamine as being an excitatory neurotransmitter, similar to glutamate. Mm. So its excitatory function basically means that it has major roles in wakefulness and arousal and the sleep-wake cycle, prim primarily through interactions with histamine H1 receptors, which is why we commonly hear of individuals taking antihistamines and commenting on feeling very sleepy and tired because they're essentially... Uh, preventing histamine from doing its job in arousal and wakefulness. Uh, and, you know, some people use them to sleep. Um, so a major role of histamine is that it drives alertness and basically making sure that we're ready um, to respond to a given situation. There's this fantastic statement in the conclusion of a 2008 paper in the Medical Journal of Physiological Reviews by Haas, H-A-A-S, and it states that Acting at the gate of consciousness, the hypothalamic histamine neurons are deeply involved in basic brain and body functions. They keep the central nervous system ready to react and the organism alert. Novelty-induced attention and arousal are of major importance for adaptation to changing environments, danger recognition, and survival. Mm. So... Like most other chemicals produced in our body, it's essentially there to protect us. And 
It's produced to keep us aroused, attentive, alert, vigilant. And it's also there to sense stress within the body. So it might be a physical stress, mm. it uh, might be a mental or emotional stress. It, histamine, it's, it senses and regulates temperature change. And it also senses threats to hydration in the body. So in fact, even when we're slightly dehydrated, the body releases histamine. So as complicated as this, this talk could get, you know, step one for some people is, are you drinking enough water? Mm, it's so simple, but so important. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Can't forget to go back to basics here um, with lifestyle medicine, you know. So histamine in the brain plays quite a central role in motivation as well. So it's released in the brain during goal-directed actions and results in arousal. And I guess in this motivation, it's simultaneously, you know, if there's too much, um, can cause a decrease in the drive to consume so it appears it's like this adaptive anorexia and lack of appetite that's likely an important feature for very high motivation behaviours. Um, and histamine also has a very important role in modulating memory and learning. Um, through its act direct action on the amygdala, um, it also helps us with the acquisition of emotional memory. Mm. So emotionally charged experiences tend to activate this histaminergic system. And another major role is basically to regulate pain sensation. So histamine is released in response to tish, uh, tissue injury and damage, and it tends to contribute to pain hypersensitivity as well. So they're kind of the main roles um, of histamine and why it's produced in the body. Yeah, which again, I mean, you think about all those different functions like learning and memory and, and you know, responding to different stressors. I mean, that's a critical function. So we do need some histamine, but I guess the issue, as we were saying before, is when there's too much of it or it's not broken down effectively and therefore it's, it's, its effects are persisting. A bit like you're saying with, with glutamine, like glutamine is important, but too much glutamine can cause issues. Yeah, exactly. So how do we know if excess histamine is causing a patient's symptoms? Like how do we know if this is what's driving a patient's condition? So histaminosis of the central nervous system, I guess in terms of excess histamine. So if you just think about it, like it will classically manifest as too much of everything we've just discussed right. about well in the brain. So extremely heightened vigilance and anxiety and hyper arousal, right? It's very stimulating. Um, and as we've discussed, this is because histamine is released, you know, in a situation where a danger or a threat is perceived. And this, you know, in terms of emotional, mental, that can be whether or not that threat is real. So due to its effects on the stress response, uh, with high levels of brain histamine, um, it, it can also present as having a reduced appetite, especially in the morning, mm. uh, which can also be a part of the picture with people who are susceptible to restricted eating habits in general, seen in like anorexia and orthorexia, um, high histamine individuals also have a tendency to be quite slim and intolerant to heat. They, they heat up very easily. Um, so, you know, speaking it, about it out loud, it sounds very similar to how we might explain to what happens to someone when we pump out adrenaline and cortisol within the stress response, right? You know, yeah leaving a threat and it's priming us to flee. Um, so appetite decreases because that's not important. Uh, or we become super alert and vigilant and we heat up and our sweat glands kick in. 
So with this heightened anxiety and hypervigilance, also obviously will come insomnia. Mm. So people with poor sleep onset and maintenance insomnia. So there's usually an element of high brain histamine levels involved in any sort of poor sleep quality. Um, high histamine individuals can become very agitated, unable to relax and rest. They tend to have a hyper attention to detail and can be perfectionists. Um, they're incredibly motivated individuals, high achieving kind of people, um, successful in a kind of conventional sense. Um, however, you know, if this goes on for too long, they can burn out and they will start to lose that motivation. So, you know, people might present as burnt out and a bit flat, but they may identify as previously as a super motivated perfectionist kind of person their whole life prior to them burning out. Um, so what's really interesting is that SSRI antidepressants may in fact require the integrity of the brain histamine system for people to see benefit from them. So there was this 2015 study in the International Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology that observed in mice that the neurotransmission of histamine um, specifically was specifically required for the SSRIs to work properly. So a potential clinical pearl when you're trying to get a whole picture of the patient is in determining whether or not they might have high histamine levels is if they have ever at some point in their medical history responded very well to SSRI medication. Um, we're not exactly, sh exactly sure why. Um, all we know is that histamine does directly stimulate serotonin and for the SSRIs to work really well, it needs high levels of histamine in the brain. Um, another high histamine clue is if someone is very susceptible to motion sickness. Because mm. when our visual and sensory input systems are experiencing, let's say, a conflict, so the body might be in motion, but the eyes can't see where it's going. Um, you know, let's say you're on a roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, this triggers a lot of histamine release. And it lands on H1 receptors in the brainstem, which are responsible, responsible for controlling our emetic or vomit response. Um, so high histamine individuals, they can also display the classic allergic features. Yeah, so wheezing, sneezing, congestion. Um, you know, in practice, I meet a lot of kind of chronic allergy people who also have these high histamine symptoms related to their mental health. And when they kind of see that connection, you know, they're kind of mind blown for a second. Because no one's brought it up before. Yeah. The histamine kind of neurotransmitter role. And also high histamine individuals can comment on having a really strong libido due to its kind of excitatory kind of high motivation effect too. So that's kind of the histaminosis picture of a very high his brain histamine uh, person. Mm. Um, People can present as having low brain histamine symptoms. And I guess you could think about it like it could appear predominantly like an opposite picture of the high histamines. So these individuals are very prone to poor cognitive function in terms of learning and memory, very poor focus and concentration. They tend to have reduced motivation and drive in general. You know, they people who... I guess, despite turning up to your clinic, they have a very reduced interest in self-care in general. Um, their appetites are generally increased, mm. much increased desire for food 
And on top of that, a reduced metabolic weight. So a lot of them have trouble with weight gain. Um, in terms of sleep, funnily enough, um, they can, a key clinical sign of low histamine is they can still have issues with sleep onset, but they tend to be very good sleepers once they're down. Um, and people with low histamine, they can still experience anxiety, but it doesn't come across as like super hypervigilant. It's more this kind of free floating sort of anxiety, like a kind of constant, almost low grade sort of unexplained triggerless anxiety that seems to hang around. Um, but in terms of depression, you know, these individuals with this free floating anxiety, they tend to be identified as being quite depressed, mm. flat and unmotivated. And there is evidence that low histamine levels can drive depression. So this has been observed by low histamine one receptor levels in the central nervous system, uh, being correlated with the, the severity of depressed individuals in some studies. And this could also be explained by the fact that low histamine means essentially you'll also have low serotonin. Yeah. And in contrast to the high histamine individuals, um, a clinical uh, pearl or clue could be that, you know, low histamine uh, people would have responded very poorly to the SSRI antidepressants. And, you know, so aside from the high and low uh, symptom pictures, if you dive into PubMed and read about histaminosis, histamine imbalance, you know, it's linked with in studies with a variety of kind of major uh, mental health conditions from OCD, schizophrenia, narcolepsy, Tourette syndrome, addictions. So its impact is, you know, widespread. And I think it's a really important topic for people to be on top of. I mean, it sounds like a lot of neurotransmitters. It sounds like the function and the purpose of histamine is really complex. It's really multifaceted. And, you know, it's mm. not as simple as saying, you know, it just does this one thing. It does a, an incredible wide spectrum of, of, of things within the brain. But mm. to me, it seems like one of the complicating factors in a way when we're talking about histamine is you don't just have histamine within the brain and the nervous system. You've also got it in the body as well. So... Can I ask, Stephen, when we're here talking about histamine, is it always histamine that's produced in the brain that's the problem or is it histamine that's produced in the body that then crosses the blood-brain barrier? Like, like how does it end up in the central nervous system, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because, you know, we have this exogenous histamine. Yeah. Histamine. So histaminergic neurons, they are exclusively located in the brain. Mm. So technically in posterior hypothalamus and... From here, they, it tra that transmits histamine to virtually the entire central nervous system. And there are, in fact, 64,000 neurons located within that posterior hypothalamus that are there solely to produce histamine. And as we discussed earlier, um, you know, deactivation of it within the central nervous system occurs within the intracellular space by the HNMT enzyme. And there's not there's no histamine coming from the peripheries and being crossed over the blood-brain barrier. So it's all made on site within the brain. And although, interestingly, excess histamine levels within the brain has been linked um, as one of several molecules that may drive blood-brain barrier breakdown and hyperpermeability, which is a pathological feature of Alzheimer's disease. Mm. But histamine is not meant to be crossing the blood-brain barrier. In terms of brain histamine, it's made on site. 
Um, I have heard a few people, including Georgia Ede, E-D-E, she's a psychiatrist who anyone can look up on YouTube and her website. She kind of bangs on about histamine quite a lot. As a psychiatrist, she um, discovered this and um, discusses it a lot in her work. She proposed that while histamine doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, um, estrogen can. And estrogen crossing the blood-brain barrier could theoretically increase brain histamine levels because we know in terms of exogenous histamine that histamine and estrogen liberate each other. The jury is out on that, but I, I guess it is worth considering. Um, that's why, you know, someone might eat high histamine foods and even though brain histamine separate, they feel pretty anxious and awful pretty soon after. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it just points to the fact that the body is an interconnected network, right? And we may not understand how all of those little bits of the network hook up, but it is interesting. Yeah. I have to say, we may just not understand fully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I think you've done a brilliant job of really painting those patient pictures, you know, from, and I think of it almost as a spectrum where from really, really high histamine patients to really, really low histamine patients and everything in between, right? And then at, at different points in their life, I'm sure patients will present at different points along that spectrum possibly. Yes. And we don't want to get too stuck on... You know, if you Google high histamine, low histamine symptoms, I mean, some websites have a list of 40 symptoms for each one. Mm. Um, you know, everyone's going to present so differently. And some people might, in fact, have a few on each side. We don't want to get too hung up on the strict kind of columns of high and low. There might be a bit of a um, mix going on. But you can just, with some individuals, even just personality type and a few key symptoms, you can kind of almost tell which way they're leaning towards, let's yeah. say, more than the other. Yeah, and it's yeah, almost it like, sense. you know, you're looking for the pattern over a long period of time as well. Because my thing is always, regardless of whether you're looking at histamine or you're looking at, you know, estrogen or glutamine, you're really just looking for what's the long-term pattern in that patient, not just what have they experienced in the last 24 or 48 hours, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really good way of putting it. Now, Stephen, you've mentioned a couple of times the link between sort of histamine and sleep, and I wouldn't mind just doing a little bit more of a deep dive into that. Like what effect does histaminosis have on sleep patterns? And, and is there a bit of a reciprocal relationship there as well where poor sleep can affect histamine levels possibly? Yeah, well, histamine, I mean, one of its main roles is to regulate the sleep-wake cycle. Um, and essentially it's most active while we're awake and barely active when we're asleep. Although we do know that when we are asleep, it is most active at this minimal level during the REM sleep phase. So the phase that most uh, closely resembles wakefulness. Um, But it doesn't just promote wakefulness in general. It has, histamine has an overall impact on our entire biological clock that regulates our circadian rhythm. So this internal 24-hour cycle that tells us when to sleep, wake up and eat. Uh, amongst other things. Um, And to answer your question about, you know, does histamine, is it affected by poor sleep as well? Well, I'd say yes, you know, because with poor sleep quality, um, the body is essentially going to sense that as a physical stress. So it's going to pump out more histamine and that's just going to become a vicious cycle. Um, Also, histaminergic neurons in the posterior hypothalamus, they're strongly and directly inhibited by GABAergic cells. 
The histaminergic neurons in the posterior hypothalamus are strongly and directly inhibited by GABAergic cells. So there was a mice study done that observed GABA acting against histamine, almost like this chemical break. Uh, so the GABA, you know, prevented wakefulness from being too intense. And so it turns out that GABA and histamine are both produced by histaminergic neurons. Uh, and the mice who had their GABA levels altered developed, you know, character characteristics similar of mania, some intense mm -hmm. restlessness and sleeplessness, which, you know, we observe in humans that are diagnosed with bipolar. So GABA is really important for balancing the excitatory effect of histamine. Yeah, and I mean, it's fascinating to sort of hear about not just the role of histamine in the brain, but then these sort of interrelationships, like you were talking before about the links between histamine and serotonin, now the links between histamine and GABA. And again, it just really makes me appreciate the importance of the balance of all these different neurotransmitters when it comes to moods and mental health. Oh, definitely. I mean, I know I'm kind of focusing, you know, exclusively on histamine today, but I guess we don't want to become too reductionist. Yeah. Um, you know, all these neurotransmitters interact with each other um, all the time. You know, none of them act in some sort of vacuum on their own. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, given the importance of histamine in, say, mental health conditions, as we're talking about today, how do you know if this is an issue for a patient? How do I determine if this is something I need to treat in my patient? Is, is there a test I can do, for example? Yeah, it's a good question. It's pretty, it's tricky to diagnose because there's not this one perfect test. Um, it almost comes down to this like, you know, clinical diagnosis um, just based on the picture okay. from people. And also it's not really commonly, even commonly recognised as a thing yet in the conventional medical realm. Um, but, you know, there are tests out there. For example, there are tests looking at the histamine metabolite and methylhistamine in urine, for example, or the Dow enzyme in the bloodstream, yeah. or the histamine skin prick test, or histamine in the stool test, or you can do whole blood histamine um, testing. But the reality is that none, they're all far from perfect and none of them combined or alone are really that reliable to definitively confirm or deny the existence of histaminosis. So since these tests I just mentioned, I mean, personally, that they don't really help me direct treatment in a specific way. I'm not going to get patients to spend an exorbitant amount of money on those. Um, with the whole blood histamine in particular, um, blood histamine levels, are notor they notoriously have a very short half-life. So the absence of high or low blood histamine, that's not going to definitively determine if someone has high or low histamine. Um, nor should it be considered to be useful to kind of blanket determine if someone should be classified as an undermethylator or an overmethylator. So just a quick note on that, because when I first discovered this years ago, I mean, I was obviously um, exposed to this idea of under and overmethylation, but it's kind of, it's way too simplistic an idea to say high histamine means you're an undermethylator, low histamine means you're an over. Mm. Uh, histamine means you're an over methylator. So this idea was presented by Carl Pfeiffer, who was a physician and a biochemist, and Abram Hoffer, who was a biochemist and a psychiatrist. And they were around in the 50s. And they, they, they were the two that essentially put forward the idea of 
having too much or too little histamine driving a range of psychiatric symptoms. And to their credit, you know, some of their ideas I've been talking about today have turned out to be pretty on point. Um, and, but in terms of relying on whole blood histamine to determine methylation status, like overall, you know, it's inadequate because of its short half-life and because, for example, you know, someone might have great methylation status, uh, they might have plenty of semi and their HNMT enzyme is working really well, but they may still have symptoms of high histamine. And for example, this could be due to poor monoamine oxidase function or MAO function, which is what causes the histamine metabolite and methylhistamine to build up. And this signals the HNMT to slow down via a negative feedback system, regardless of someone having good SAMI and good methylation function. So, you know, that's just one example, but mm. we're continuing to learn the body is pretty complicated and under and over methylation, you know, it's a bit too simplistic. So I'm not relying on whole blood histamine on its own to determine if someone, to confirm like if someone is a high or low histamine kind of individual. I personally do like to use a methylation profile test to determine whether or not SAMe would be an appropriate supplement for patients who are presenting with high brain histamine symptoms, as it is one of the most effective supplements to clear excess brain histamine due to poor methylation status. So some people could, in theory, just take it and see how they go, um, but I tend to work with some very sensitive people, and there tend to be other things impacting their methylation status, like inflammation, heavy metal toxicity, gut dysbiosis, for example, that they, they tend to need to be addressed before they can handle straight up semi. Mm. So the methylation profile is handy. Um, so it basically consists of testing blood levels of SAMI and SAR, so acidenosyl homocysteine, and that gives you the SAMI-SAR ratio, 5-MTHFR, um, folinic acid, and tetrahydrofolate. So this methylation profile gives you some clear guidance on how to safely dispense SAMI if it's appropriate, and also how to specifically work with other methylation nutrients like folate and some other B vitamins. And, you know, with our focus on brain histamine imbalance, genetic testing can obviously give you a picture of what your susceptibilities are when it comes to these genetic variants, like, for example, with HNMT. And although histamine doesn't have anything to do with the MTHFR gene directly, obviously having a bigger picture of overall methylation function, so by looking at MTHFR and COMT, for example, would obviously be helpful because mm. they all affect other pathways in the body that will eventually kind of directly and indirectly affect your histamine load. So, you know, for example, COMT, with COMT issues, there's a susceptibility to poor estrogen detoxification, and we know that histamine and estrogen liberate each other, at least when we're talking about exogenous histamine. And, you know, so some people like to do the genetic testing. Um, I will use it with patients sometimes if they want to look into that, but I don't prioritise it as a beginning test if we're trying to prioritise testing, say, based on funds. Because at the end of the day, it, it still doesn't direct my treatment too specifically because I want, I want my testing to explain why, you know, help me um, to prescribe certain things specifically. The gene testing is just a bit of a confirmation on a genetic level. Um, 
But aside from these, it's important not to forget, obviously, to get all the basic bloods done. Um, I personally also like to use HTMA to assess heavy metal and mineral status because coming from the viewpoint that any imbalances here are going to directly affect methylation, gut health, sleep, HPA axis dysfunction. So while HTMA is not directly linked to HNMT and brain histamine and just reducing to that, but it's just a piece of everyone's complete health picture that will have a downstream effect on methylation and therefore brain histamine. Um, from a similar place, I also make sure to check the zinc and copper ratios and unbound copper levels because zinc and copper does directly affect HNMT function too, especially when it comes to having uh, overactive HNMT causing low histamine. And you know, if we get if we do get into the realm of exogenous histamine imbalance, then we also want to consider whether or not we need extensive gut microbiome or SIBO testing and also looking at addressing hormonal imbalances. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think really there it's about looking at each potential contributor to that web that we were talking about before and trying to kind of figure out which components are driving the histamine imbalance in this patient. And just one thing to clarify, and excuse me if this is a really silly question, but when you say HTMA, you're talking about hair tissue mineral analysis, aren't you? Yes. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's right. It's just because there is that really strong link between heavy metals and, and certain minerals, like you're saying, looking at zinc and copper and obviously, you know, the, the link there to histamine and, and also the links with methylation. So yeah. yeah, some really, really good tips there for what testing to look at. Um, thank you, Stephen. I appreciate that very thorough overview of all the different tests that we could be looking at doing. It's okay. Now, obviously, you know, as practitioners, the next step for us once we've done all the assessment is, okay, well, what do we do about it? So can I ask you, Stephen, you know, what are your favourite supplements, if you like, when you're actually treating histaminosis in a patient? Yes, in terms of this brain histaminosis or endogenous histamine clearance, um, as I mentioned earlier, with very high histamine, SAMI is a winner here, um, as well as obviously considering, considering all these other methylation care factors. Um, so activated B vitamins and amino acids like serine. Um, although, like I mentioned, I do personally proceed with some caution with the SAMI and tend to get methylation profile testing done. And while we're waiting on results and stuff, you know, we're working on lifestyle factors like sleep hygiene and management. Um, so I do like to use GABA a lot to help on top of sleep hygiene, but to help with improving their sleep onset and maintenance while mm. we're dealing deeper issues as well obviously is you know herbal medicines that work on GABA receptors so um there's a variety of options there passion flowers is the first california poppy lavender um in the same spirit i also do like to use high dose magnesium citrate um you know this is also just for managing the stress response and our hpa axis in general and i guess with the sleep and managing stress you know they're crucial considering you know what we were talking about before in our understanding that histamine is produced in very high amounts when it perceives like an internal physical threat, so dehydration or stress, you know, whether it's real or imagined. So with low people with low histamine, um, oh, we have to consider very obvious things like people might have a poor protein profile in their diet, so they have low histidine, so they don't have the amino acid needed to make enough histamine. And, you know, you'd be surprised how many people uh, in practice present as having a very protein deficient diet. So we have to consider that. 
Um, they may have issues with zinc and copper and B6. Um, so zinc, B, copper and zinc are cofactors for converting histidine to histamine. So zinc and or copper and B6 can be useful here. To be honest, I've, I've rarely, if ever, had to prescribe copper, but I just determine all that, with, again, with the HTMA and the zinc copper profiles. Um, and so the best way to block an overactive HNMT enzyme is actually to use vitamin B3. So there are studies looking at, you know, 100 milligrams of B3 increases histamine by approximately 40% within five hours. And B3 also increases serotonin. And B3, if you just think of it, is where Sammy was a methyl donor to get rid of the histamine as quickly as possible. B3 is a methyl consumer. Um, and, you know, in these circumstances, the people with very low histamine, which can be induced by a range of psychiatric medications, by the way. Um, so if people are taking meds or for whatever other reasons they have low histamine, they may not do too well on things like GABA or uh, taurine and glycine, which help with GABA production. Yeah, okay. That's great. And, I mean, okay, I guess stepping back from supplements a little bit, Stephen, mm -hmm. are there any specific, like, say lifestyle changes that you re recommend to these patients who have histaminosis? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, like I said before, um, I think earlier um, when we we're talking about the slightest bit of dehydration mm. causing the body to ramp up histamine, we have to go back to basics of people. Um, so hydration, obviously, like if people drinking enough water, um, again, you'd be surprised how many people are not drinking enough water. Uh, stress management and sleep hygiene, again, which kind of go, can go hand in hand. Um, I say to a lot of my clients, you know, regardless of what you're coming in here for, it's histamine imbalance or endometriosis or SIBO, I'm like the big three to, for us to start working on is stress, sleep and gut. Mm. So while we might need to go off and do methylation profile and kind of more niche -y kind of stuff in this histamine world, we have to get the stress, the stress, sleep and the gut right. So we're working on hydration, uh, we're looking at stress management techniques and we're working very hard on sleep hygiene. Because once you get people sleeping better, a lot of things can just balance out. Um, I'm a huge fan only recently, really, since last year of lifestyle changes that work in line with our circadian rhythm, because especially because of histamine's role in governing that circadian rhythm. So I'm a big fan of Dr. Sachin Panda's work. Mm. on rhythm research and he's i mean he's all over youtube he's on ted talks he's got a book called the circadian code which goes into a lot more detail but he essentially explains the best times of the day he explains the best times of the day to eat certain quantities of food as well as when to exercise and a range of other things um so you know he provides his research on how um, to optimise our circadian rhythm, it's best to eat a medium-sized meal at lunch, a huge, sorry, a medium-sized meal at breakfast, quite a large-sized uh, meal at lunch, and a very minimal dinner. Mm. And, you know, when people eat this way, their sleep quality dramatically improves. Their metabolism is on fire and they just feel better. So considering, like we've discussed, histamine's role in governing the circadian rhythm, I'm a huge fan of, um, planting his work and planting that seed in people's minds and how it's going to benefit them for balancing out histamine. Um, also, you know, just heat. Heat as a physical stress can trigger histamine release. 
So for really sensitive people who are, you know, very obviously um, going through histaminosis, it's worth considering not being in too much direct intense sunlight, high intensity exercise and muscular inflammation can provoke histamine release. So I'm a big fan in general of balancing out high intensity and a lot of resistance training with more restorative practices like meditation, pranayama, yin yoga. Mm. I mean, you know, these are things that I recommend for people regardless of what they're coming in for, like I said before. But yeah, it's just really back to basic. But if you can link it specifically with how it relates to histamine, you know, it does provide people like a bit more incentive and motivation to do it because they can see the link with how it's going to help them specifically. Absolutely. And I mean, I really love that point that you make about regardless of what the patient comes in for, that you've got those really foundational things of, you know, stress management, sleep hygiene and gut health. Like that's a really good platform to start with. And then obviously you, you build on that depending on the patient's individual presentation. Yes. And I guess, I mean, you've taken us through an amazing tour, Stephen, of the whole world of histamine, but I'm wondering if practitioners are new to this area and they, they want to learn more, they want to get their head around the biochemistry a bit better, are there any resources or like websites that you can recommend for practitioners to look up? Yeah, it's a bit of a random list, um, but just in my own uh, discoveries and learnings about it, my top four people would have to be um, naturopath nutritionist legend Rachel Upper. Mm-hmm. Um, she has some great podcasts and resources on understanding and figuring out the high low histamine um, issues in people. Um, and just highly evidence-based too. So she's kind of taken the huge broad ideas of histaminosis that were, you know, ideas proposed in the 50s and really kind of consolidated it down like to a, just a better, more succinct understanding based on more recent research. So Rachel Arthur, amazing. Um, Georgia Inge, that psychiatrist, mm-hmm. a few times. For clients and practitioners alike, she's got some great, uh, videos and presentations on the internet, kind of breaking it down for people. Um, ben Lynch, Mr. MTHFR, has some good stuff. And Joanne Kennedy is a Sydney naturopath who is a bit of an MTHFR and histamine guru also. Yeah, that'd be my That's tip. Fantastic. And, I mean, that's certainly um, going to give people a great place to start if they want to find out a bit more information. And I really have to say thank you so much for your generosity, Stephen. I think you've, you've shared with us so many clinical pearls and tips and, um, you know, as well as doing a really in-depth dive into some of the biochemistry. But I think from my perspective, it's really given me a good overview of how histamine is important for healthy brain function, but also how an imbalance in histamine can affect patients. So I really have to say thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, no worries. Pleasure. And thank you also to those of you who tuned in. We hope you found our discussion today as interesting and useful as I did. So please tune in next week for another great podcast from us here at Biopractica. To continue the conversation or find out more about our products and educational resources, please head to biopractica.com.au. Biopractica, empowering healthcare professionals.